Messier 51. And that's all we're talking about today, folks, with Alistair Ling on episode 314 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers and love looking up at the night sky. And today we're going to talk about a galaxy with Alistair Ling. So welcome back to the show, Alistair. We spoke a few weeks back on observing lists and you prepared one object for us to talk about today. Yeah. Before we did the show on observing lists uh, last month, you had invited me to come on to the podcast and we were going to start with a, just a wide range chat about all sorts of stuff. Um, and, uh, and so I brought up uh, that I had uh, really gotten into uh, the, the Web Society observing books uh, because uh, Walter Scott Houston's articles in Sky and Tell weren't enough for my hunger of the deep sky. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you had uh, keyed in on this and, and then I said, well, I joined the Web Society, found out all about uh, Herschel's observations that they were actually published and uh, that the University of Toronto library actually had copies and I was in Toronto at the time so as I was digging away through it I came across the observations of Lord Ross and I was gobsmacked just staring open mouth shocked in a very positive way when I came across his uh, realistic sketch of the whirlpool and so uh, yeah essentially uh, that's what you had keyed in on I, I said I'd love to share this with the, the folks out there who may not be aware of the sort of the series uh, observing that Lord Ross had done. Um, and, and one of the things I just want to say, um, you know, about the one topic show is that, well, listeners with four or six inch scopes don't tune out because uh, although you're going to hear about large apertures, there's a whack of detail available in the Whirlpool Galaxy. And we're going to talk about uh, how you two uh, can get in on it. So a little bit of history, some tips and tricks of visual observing, magnification, dark adaptation, tracking. Uh, so uh, and, and uh, even a beginner with one year experience will have tried for the Whirlpool. So it's a fantastic subject. So just really quick, uh, Alistair, you're a longtime amateur astronomer, a contributor to Astronomy Magazine. That's where you've co-authored The Sky This Month since uh, the 90s. And you already referenced your connection to the uh, Web Society and those great Web Society books, which I also have a set on my bookshelf. So why don't we start with how to find M51 in the night sky? The way I usually do it is uh, I find the Big Dipper and then I locate Megrez and Dubé connect those two with a line and basically extend that all the way over to Elkade. Is that the last star in the handle? Yeah. And basically it forms a, a right angle. And at that, at that junction of the right angle is uh, roughly where you'll find M51. That's how I do it. I know there's a few other methods out there too. What I always find interesting about M51 is that it's not actually in the constellation of the Big Dipper or Ursa Major, I should say. Uh, that it's actually in Canis uh, Venetici. So I, I think it probably took me half of my observing career to finally learn that. <laughs> Just assumed it was a part of Ursa Major for most of that time. It, it is uh, so close. And and uh, one of the things on, that I found out while researching this, because uh, there's always depth in history, is that uh, before it was called Canis uh, Venetici, it was Asterian, still uh, hunting dogs, but then uh, they, when they, they, the IAU, uh, um, put officialized the uh, constellations, they uh, turned it into 
Canis Venetici. The Canis Venetici is a, a little bit of a tongue twister or, or maybe a difficult uh, constellation to pronounce. So uh, what is the pronunciation of that? Are, are we saying it correctly, Alistair? Well, um, almost. And part of the, the fun about this is that I haven't been saying it properly for decades. My reference for this is the RASC Observer's Handbook, and they have a pronunciation guide because you can get into some uh, pretty twisted Latin stuff that uh, basically, uh, you know, three people in the whole world know something about, but the rest <laughs> of us don't. And uh, so pronunciation guide has variations of you know, E, A, A, and, and, and so on. And so according to uh, the way it uh, it's written there, it's supposed to be Canis Vinatici. Canis so, Vinatici. Okay, I'll try to remember that. Like Canis, like Canis Major, it's Canis. Canis, okay. Sorry. <laughs> See, I'm still mucking it up. <laughs> <laughs> I've also heard it called Canis Venatici. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, some of the help is that um, modern Italian is, I guess, the closest language to uh, Latin <laughs> that's uh, out there. And so it's, it's a chi at the end. So I've been saying it wrong for decades, and it'll probably take me another decade to uh, get into the proper way of uh, saying it. Let's uh, uh, move on. So uh, uh, you know, I want good. to thank the listeners out there who wrote in with sketches and observations. So uh, why don't one of you uh, take it away on that? Maybe I'll just start with Wayne's uh, email into us. So, and I've edited these a little bit, folks. As Alistair said, we we had many emails and observations, sketches and images. Appreciate all that. Trying to uh, give a little bit from everybody. Wayne wrote in with an image and a sketch. He says, greetings, guys. I started listening to your podcast over the last few months and truly enjoy it. I heard you ask for submissions of photos and sketches of M51. So I'm attaching one. I'm a 97% visual astronomer and give astrophotography a try once in a while. So this is definitely not uh, high quality compared to the many wonderful astro photographs that are out there. I mainly want to let you know I took this image using cheap equipment such as a Canon 70D DSLR, an 18 to 300 millimeter Tamron lens, a star tracker, star adventurer from my suburban backyard, which is Bortle seven to eight skies in Seattle during the early days of COVID. And I just want to send this along as I get excited when I heard you talk about M51 and have not thought much about this photo since the early days of COVID. And so Wayne actually included this great photo and then he sent me along his link to his great logging website. He has a website where he keeps all his logs. And then Alistair on the right side there, you'll see he also is uh, mostly actually sketching the objects, not necessarily imaging them. And he sent us a great little sketch through an eight inch uh, Schmidt Cassegrain showing the larger smudge of M51 and then the smaller smudge from the uh, companion galaxy. Pretty cool, eh? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it uh, reminds me of uh, you know what it looks like in uh, a smaller scope uh, from the suburbs. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Mike says, Dear Chris and Shane, after listening to your recent-ish episode about the stars in the northern sky, I decided to participate and send in my image of M51 that I took on Sunday, March 19th from my Bortle 3 backyard in central Illinois. I wish my backyard was Bortle 3, but so it's why? not. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. So some details of the image here. Uh, there's 175 light frames at 30 seconds each at an ISO setting of 1600. 
Uh, there was 30 dark frames, 30 flats, and then 60 bias frames. The gear involved here was an Orion Skyview Pro 8, which is an 8-inch F4.9 Newtonian on a Orion Skyview Pro EQ mount with an aftermarket go-to. The camera was a Nikon D3500 and then uh, manually guided through the finder scope for every 20 shots, uh, pre-processed and post-processed using Pix Insight. And then Mike finishes up by saying, I really love the recent episode on going through the stars in the sky, and I can't wait for the other installments in the series. Love the podcast, Mike. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Mike. We also had Stephen who wrote in, aka Astro Geek, and uh, he's sent us in some beautiful photos before and says that he continues to enjoy the podcast. I heard you are collecting notes, observations, drawings, and images of M51 in preparation for an upcoming show on the Whirlpool Galaxy. I have to share two CCD images taken 12 years apart. The first is with a 5-inch Takahashi with an S-Big CCD camera. And just recently, March 20th, 21st of 2023, a Celestron 11-inch SCT with another S-Big camera. And it looks like it's the same camera. And beautiful, beautiful shots uh, that Stephen uh, sent us along. These are just gorgeous, eh? They're quite outstanding. And it's interesting to look at Stephen's shots, which have, you know, I'd say some purplish tones in the primary galaxy there. And then if we look back at Mike's, who's, you know, with the email we just read, much more bluish tones. And uh, I'm always intrigued by some of the colors uh, that imagers bring out, depending how they do their processing and, you know, all of the magic behind the scenes. We also heard from Michael Wright because... I asked Michael if he would do us a sketch because he's got a new 12-inch reflector and I know he was going to be going out with it and he was having better skies than we were and I was like, Michael, can you do us a sketch? And he said, if it's clear and I have time and fortunately, he actually sent us two sketches. He sent us one from his uh, 4.5-inch reflector that he did uh, in June of last year and then uh, the image on the right is from his 12-inch, which... uh, I, I got to say, we commissioned for this uh, for this episode showing the uh, beautiful spiral arms. I'm, I'm curious, Alistair, what do you think of this set of sketches from Michael? Oh, I, I really like it. And, and the, the, the small scope one using the 115 newt, it really hit home for me because that was my first true telescope. I had a Christmas trash scope before that. Uh, and and the, that sketch that Michael did is, is sort of, wow, that's just, just like what I saw in my scope. And it just like, it just might very well be the same sort of uh, uh, scope. Uh, mine was uh, uh, a Carl Wetzlar, uh, aka Tasco, uh, when you pull the label off. But uh, I still have that scope and, and I use it for uh, public outreach. But I, I, I went back to my observations and just like, yep, yep. That's just just how I saw it. So uh, uh, it's uh, really uh, touches that, and then you know, seeing the spiral arms uh, with the uh, the bigger uh, scopes also reminded me of uh, all the mentors I had when I was running through the Messier list for the first time. I'd always sort of walk over a few feet and grab a look at through somebody's eight inch or ten inch, and that's what inspired me to get to make my own 10 inch later. What these days a four inch newt may seem a little small, but a while ago that would have been quite the instrument. And by sheer coincidence, totally unplanned, this year, 2023, is the 250th anniversary of a very important moment in time. Shane, can you tell us a bit about that? Oof, uh, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. So. <laughs> 
Is that is that when it was discovered? Yes. Okay, there we go. Yeah, so Messier's augmented catalog was published in 1780, and he discovered M51 on October 13th, 1773, and that was reported in the Memoirs of the Academy in 1774. A decent observation he made indeed. Here it is translated by Ken Glenn Jones as a very faint nebula without stars near the ear of Canis Venetici, below the star Eta, second magnitude of the tail of Ursa Major. While observing the comet which appeared that year, it can be seen only with difficulty in an ordinary telescope of three feet and a half. That's the focal length. Uh, the aperture is sighted as 100 millimeter. And and I, I noticed, Alistair, in the notes, you put that was a, a pre-Takahashi instrument uh, operating at about f10.5. Near it is a star of eighth magnitude. It is a double, each having a bright center separated by four minutes and 35 seconds of arc. The two atmospheres touch each other. One is fainter than the other. Reviewed several times. So that's that's Messier's observations as translated by Ken Glenn Jones. I, I have the Ken Glenn Jones Messier book. That's a wonderful text. I think people should get that because he actually includes uh, beautiful sketches for each of the objects and and the original translations um, of Messier's work. That that's just a beautiful beautiful text. People should consider picking up. It, that's the uh, the search for the nebulae. It's called the Messier objects. I think. Okay, yep. Yeah. I I also have the search for the nebulae as well. All right, Alistair, tell us about your notes about M fifty one. Well, um, as I was digging into uh, my archives, uh, it says uh, M51 is visible in the 8x50 finder from a decent sky. Chris, uh, have you tried the Whirlpool with those super low power optics of yours? Yeah, I've I've observed it with everything down to the 50 millimeter refractor <laughs> with a two inch eyepiece in it. So it's just kind of looks like a super micro version of of what uh, Michael had in his sketch there. Yeah. Uh, we've also received some nice images from uh, Richard C. from Edmonton, from uh, Peter and, and Jim C. And uh, uh, your good friend Mike sent in a sketch in a bigger scope too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, why don't we talk about some observations in uh, some larger apertures? Um, Alistair, could you uh, tell us about some of the uh, some of the other historical observations? Yeah, you bet. Uh, naturally, uh, one finds uh, several observations of M51 with refractors of the day, but uh, breaking the field open is a name that should be familiar to uh, most deep sky observers, William Herschel. Um, it was a dark and very clear night. <laughs> well, he, he would have of course, been observing with smaller telescopes originally, like the one that he found uh, the planet Uranus with. And so only two years after the, that discovery and armed with a pension from the king, uh, William went into observing with full force. He was able to have the time and the money, and he built a huge scope on a rotating scaffolded platform. It's, it's really quite something when you look this thing up, 20 feet focal length. And just like, uh, I got to think about how big that is. <laughs> and uh, the mirror was uh, 18 inches across, so 46 centimeters, uh, F13, so um, less tricky to parabolize. Uh, and the thing was made of speculum. Uh, so it's, uh, it's this copper tin alloy, so solid metal. Uh, but 
all of this, um, you know, 18 inch with, uh, and a speculum isn't as shiny as, as a nice aluminized glass that we have these days. Um, but so it ends up being really convenient that uh, to us, his uh, tarnishing metal mirror uh, gives images not that different from a, a 12 inch, uh, 30 centimeter newt. And our observations confirm this. Like when, when I look at something and I read his notes, it's like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm seeing. In our correspondence, you said you found uh, an Easter egg in Herschel's publication. So Alistair, you mentioned during the beginning that you had gone to uh, was it the University of Toronto and were able to do some photocopying there of Herschel's uh, publications and found something in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was uh, his uh, transaction of the Royal Society of London in uh, 1789. Um, and at the end of this article that is entitled Catalogue of a Second Thousand of New Nebula and Star Clusters, he has literally, I'm quoting here, P.S., the planet Saturn has a sixth satellite revolving around it in about 32 hours, 48 minutes. Its orbit is within that of the first satellite. And, you know, just, oh, you know, by the way, P.S., Saturn has another satellite. You know, just, just you know, part of the thing that happens when you're out there observing a lot. It just like, you know, what a guy. It just absolutely blows my mind that. Uh, uh, they're able to do that uh, kind of thing. When you th uh, think about it as well, uh, you know, 1789 and uh, the discovery was in 1773. So you're only talking 15, 16 years after M51 was first discovered. And he's all, Herschel's already got 2,000 deep sky objects added to the charts. <laughs> That's just mind blowing. So it's, uh, well, here they go uh, for some of it. So um, back to 1783, um, most difficult to resolve, yet I do no longer doubt it. In the Southern Nebula, I saw several stars by various glimpses in the Northern, also three or four in the thickest part of it, but never very distinctly. Evening, very bad. <laughs> so skip ahead to spring. I have a lot of observations similar to Herschel, it turns out. <laughs> A spring evening, he uh, calls it bright, a very uncommon object, nebulosity in the center with the nucleus surrounded by detached nebulosity in the form of a circle of unequal brightness in three or four places, forming altogether a most curious object. And then another uh, year or two later in uh, 88, 1788, very bright, large, surrounded with the beautiful glory of milky nebulosity with here and there small interruptions that seem to go through the glory at a distance. Now, for those of you not accustomed to a sort of older, lesser used English, a glory here is uh, just means a round halo, a tight colored halo around the sun is called a corona. But when you sort of see it in reverse from an airplane looking down and you see a nice uh, set of uh, colored rings on the clouds, it's called the glory. It turns out that starting all the way back with Galileo, uh, each time uh, someone put more aperture and more power on the sky, nebulous objects tended to be resolved into stars. Uh, obviously, the Orion Nebula is the, the one that uh, is the exception here, but a lot of other things. Uh, for example, Galileo's observation of the, the beehive cluster. It's like, oh yeah, the Presepi cloud 
Oh, it, it's made of stars. The Milky Way, that cloud, it's made of stars. And so everything was starting to resolve into stars. But um, according to uh, Ken Glenn Jones, Herschel himself did not admit until 1790 that some nebula have a much easier explanation of a luminous fluid instead of stars at an immense distance. Um, and it's just kind of neat to note that Herschel first was the first to coin the term planetary nebula, and that object itself was NGC 7009, the one we know more familiarly as the Saturn nebula. And he called that one nearly round, not well-defined disk. And it's interesting to aside here that uh, he did not see the Ansayer extensions uh, away from uh, that uh, planetary nebula. So let's, um, with that, uh, pop back to some listener contributions. I'll read an email from Justin here. Uh, so I listened to your recent episode 309 on Tuesday at 1am when I woke up due to the aforementioned jet lag and you asked for some observations of M51. That evening, I went with a couple of friends up to Porto Cove, uh, a half an hour drive north from Vancouver, and had my first real observation session with the 15-inch Obsession Telescope that I split 50-50 with my colleague Jeff, who is, a, who is also an avid astronomer. Uh, we purchased this telescope from Facebook Marketplace of all places late last year from an estate sale for a great price. Porto Cove is roughly Bortle 4, and the sky transparency was average, but the 15-inch still delivered the views, bringing out splendid detail in the dark dust lanes of M42 and resolving the two main spiral arms of M51. The bridge was faintly visible. Uh, compared to my 10-inch, which was set up alongside, it was no contest. The view in the 15-inch was far brighter with superior contrast. Really looking forward to taking the 15-inch under darker skies this year. Cheers, Justin. And we appreciate the email from, from Justin. He's actually back from a trip, a little bit of a teaser there. We're going to have Justin on the show. Um, Shane sold him some uh, Nagler 13 millimeter eyepieces and uh, he's not happy. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> we've been chatting, uh, Justin and I. Uh, Justin has one of the uh, Skywatcher AZ-EQ6 mounts with a 10-inch meet a ACF and a, and a Takahashi on the other side. He's recently bought two more Takahashis and uh, had a really great trip to Japan. So he's going to come on here in a, in a few weeks time. And, and we're going to have a chat about his observing and his uh, trip to telescope stores in Japan. Alistair William had a son named John Herschel who continued in his father's footsteps, which was very difficult because Herschel liked to walk on the beach and it was high tide when John made it back. So, but, um, Tell us about John Herschel a little bit. Yeah, um, well, uh, he grew up in the uh, in the family surrounded by all this equipment. He eventually, uh, his big thing uh, was that he discovered infrared radiation. Um, but uh, he's also well known for having taken essentially a well, made a copy of uh, Herschel's 18-inch uh, 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 F13 uh, big scope. He took that down to uh, Cape Town, South Africa, and uh, did a whole whack of the southern sky. And he tabulated something that was eventually called the general catalog. So 
everything. Uh, by that point, people were discovering more and more, well, what we now know as galaxies uh, and, and nebulosities. And so there, there's a real hodgepodge of catalogs. And so uh, John Herschel took it upon himself to assemble it all uh, by right ascension and um, and turn it into the general catalog. And eventually, of course, more and more people still discovered uh, additional stuff. And that became the new general catalog, the NGC that a lot of us are familiar with. And, and we throw NGC numbers around like NGC 7000, the North American Nebula. So new anymore, is it? Not so new, but uh, it, it, it has staying power. <laughs> We should now refer to it as the old general catalog, just to confuse people. Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know you have a, have a dislike for the renaming of things, so I had to put that in there. Anyways, as, as the calendar ticked into the 1800s, uh, both Herschels uh, as well as other astronomers were convinced that they had seen changes in M42. And of course, today we all know it's like, Puh! Uh, no, I mean, we can see changes in the expanding crab nebula. That's pretty cool. But uh, it turns out that uh, John Herschel's drawing uh, of M51 is actually a bit disappointing to me. Uh, basically, two hazy disks with the bigger one having an off-center arc cutting across it. it sort of hits me like a drawing made from memory the next day and, and without notes. Oh, yeah, 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 something like this. Uh, but thankfully, he did write more. And instead of the dry scientific style of today, the ramblings of these uh, pre-Victorian astronomers were much more loquacious, entertaining, uh, but uh, most important to me, uh, tangible. You can almost uh, hear them say uh, these, uh, these words as they step down from the ladder and from the eyepiece. So here we go with John's Herschel's longer description. I do not find that the partial subdivision of the ring into two branches throughout its self-following limb was noticed by my father. This is, however, one of its most remarkable and interesting features. Supposing it to consist of stars, the appearance it would present to a spectator placed on a planet attendant on one of them eccentrically situated towards the north preceding quarter of the central mass would be exactly similar to that of our Milky Way traversing in a manner precisely analogous to the firmament of large stars into which the central cluster would be seen projected and, owing to its distance, appearing, like it, to consist of stars much smaller than those in the other parts of the heavens. And I have to take a deep breath here because that was one sentence. <laughs> they liked long sentences. Uh, anyways, uh, he goes on to say, can it then be that we have here a brother system bearing a re real physical resemblance and strong analogy of structure to our own? Were it not for the subdivision of the ring, the most obvious analogy would be that of the system of Saturn and the idea of Laplace respecting the formation of the system would be powerfully recalled by this object. But it is evident that all idea of symmetry caused by rotation must be relinquished when we consider that the elliptic form of the inner subdivided portion indicates with extreme probability in an elevation of that portion above the plane of the rest. So that the real form must be that of the ring split through half of its circumference and having split portions set asunder at an angle of about 45 degrees, each to the plane of the other. It's like, oof. Uh, so, uh, I mean, apart from the, the, the bit that he, you know, 
couldn't quite say spiral. Uh, they, they had no idea of, uh, of spiral stuff at, at that point. But it's uh, I find it interesting that this is one of the uh, earlier thoughts uh, right around the time when Immanuel Kant was also proposing that, hey, a lot of those uh, and distant clouds out there might be galaxies just like our own, but just out at enormous distances. So that's that, that's you know part of that uh, astronomy history that uh, that I find really neat, where it's the you know oh you know we're starting to find out about stuff. People enjoy where philosophy and astronomy collide. I I recommend reading Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. It's it's a wonderful text. Hey, speaking of spirals, though, didn't Lord Ross, a.k.a. William Parsons, create that uh, memorable Whirlpool sketch with some sort of monstrous scope back in the 1800s? He sure did, Chris. Uh, he built the world's largest reflector at the time, and it's held that record for more than 50 years from 1845 until uh, the Mount Hooker 100-inch telescope in California was uh, uh, begun. So uh, it's uh, pretty impressive for 50 years, this this monster. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it. It was located uh, pretty close smack into the central Ireland. Uh, I mean, can you imagine North Sea weather? Oh, God. Uh, our listeners uh, southeast of the Great Lakes here in North America know that uh, how poor the winter weather can be when you've got all that open water uh, to you uh, uh, to your uh, northwest. It, it must have been uh, pretty difficult uh, uh, in Ireland, uh, and obviously still is uh, the weather challenges. Anyways, the, the, the scope, six feet diameter, uh, pretty good for an amateur. There were no professionals back there. So 1.83 meters, and it was an F8.8 Newtonian. Uh, though it was often used in a Herschelian mode. And, and, you just uh, keep your head in there, isn't it? Uh, just about, yeah. You, you, so you, um, of course, the uh, uh, a parabolic mirror sends sends the light back to a, a point, and we all use uh, a diagonal to knock the light uh, out of the telescope. But uh, in Herschelian mode, the problem is is that while the diagonals were were made of speculum, and so they were at best eighty percent reflective, and they got worse as they got tarnished. And so, to make sure they they had as much light as possible, they actually tilted the mirror slightly so that it would come to a focus at the edge of the tube, and then they'd stick their eye right against the edge of the tube um, uh, to look in. Um, and and so uh, this thing being made of speculum, as I mentioned earlier, a, a combination of copper and tin, um, uh, was um, three tons in weight. Uh, mind you, a six-foot mirror would still be pack a pretty good weight, but three tons. Um, and so it was called the Leviathan of Parsons Town. Um, and they actually had to have two because they tarnished so quickly uh, that they had to repolish uh, the tarnish off. And of course, anybody who's made a mirror knows that when you uh, repolish a mirror, you also have to reparabolize it. And they were doing this every few years. So they had two mirrors, one in use and one in the shop being repolished. And it was only until uh, 1879 that uh, they got the first silver deposit on glass. But uh, can you imagine the tube currents for a, a, a three-ton piece of metal uh, after a, a decent September day? It's like, ugh. 
it fell into disuse uh, after uh, the the big mirror uh, glass silver on glass mirrors took over uh, but it had enough interest over the years uh, to get restored and it's now a visitor attraction in Ireland so that's high on my list uh, when uh, when I'll be uh, heading to Ireland at some point and I didn't know uh, the following until I researched it but that interest over the years uh, was generated by the Sky at Night TV show coverage by none other than Patrick Moore so uh you know, thank you, uh, Sir Patrick, for uh, having uh, uh, kept up the uh, the interest in that uh, huge uh, scope. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Uh, it's kind of like my Lamborghinis. I I have one that I drive and then one in the shop. So, how did they make that giant scope way way back then uh, in the eighteen hundreds, Sir Alistair? Well, um, back then, because of limitations in engineering and materials, well, for one thing, uh, the the, uh, the mirrors had to be uh, cast, you know, just like you see in an iron foundry somewhere. Um, and actually, uh, Herschel's basement, the uh, there's cracked floors where the molten metal poured out on the floor and cracked the stones. Um, and, and so they, they had to learn how to pour these huge discs and cool them very gently so that they wouldn't crack. Because if you cool a hot metal very quickly, it'll shatter, actually. So, um the uh because of all that um stuff and they they weren't uh they, they were good at building bridges but uh, telescopes is another matter and so it was essentially uh an alt as telescope with a very narrow range of azimuth um about one hour the the scope that massive thing was slung with chains between two huge stone walls and so they only had about one hour of tracking and they did it uh, with the scope pointing south. And uh, for those of you who know the sky, when objects are crossing the meridian, they're essentially going sideways. Uh, and so that's, of course, a about the easiest uh, bit of, uh, you know, machining and engineering you can do. Oh, push this sideways. Um, and so that's, uh, that's how they did it for uh, one hour uh, transit. So you can imagine, uh, you know, whether it's the, the whirlpool or, or any other object, you know, let's keep observing this. Nope, we've, uh, we've hit the limit. We're going to have to try tomorrow night or next week or next year. So thanks to summer twilight, uh, they actually never got to see M57, the ring nebula in full darkness because it never crossed the meridian quite in time for them to have a look at it. So just amazing. Uh, but uh, Lord Ross and his team got so skilled at making these large instruments that they became the engineering firm Grubb Parsons. And they supplied the world with uh, numerous one to two uh, meter class uh, equatorial mounts uh, through the, uh, through the uh, 1900s. What were they able to see, uh, Lord Ross and his team? What did they see exactly through that uh, instrument? Well, um, before I, I get to the uh, precise uh, quoting there, you've got to remember the context a bit. Uh, this all happened when astroimaging could barely capture the full moon and several decades before the great debate about whether the spiral nebula were island universes in their own right, or were they just local nebula condensing solar systems. So here's uh, Lord Ross speaking uh, a little bit about this. In some instances with increasing optical power, the resolvable character becomes clearly developed and a further increase of power has shown the object resolved into stars. 
Uh, it is also perhaps important to observe that now, as has always been a case, an increase in power has added to the number of clusters at the expense of the nebula. Still, it would be very unsafe to conclude that all nebulosity is but the glare of stars too remote to be separated by the utmost power of our instruments. Here we go with uh, uh, among his earlier observations of N51. It abounds in stars mixed with nebulosity. I have not yet seen it on a very fine night, but it was observed by my assistant and a gentleman who was with him, and they had no doubt but that the center was completely resolved. Now, before you laugh that off, it's just like, how could they see that M51, you know, think that it was a cluster. Take a good look at, say, a, a Hubble Space Telescope image of M51 central region, uh, like the, the real close-up one, not the full spiral, just the center. And it's a mess of H2 regions and broken up star clouds. Uh, a lovely word I like uh, to describe this is flocculent, and there are other flocculent spirals out there. Um, so stand back three or four meters from your screen. Imagine a bit of wafting seeing. And I think you too would notice that. Now, it's a lot like the core of a globular cluster. In 1843, 50 years after Herschel uh, first uh, went at it, he, uh, Lord Ross had a three-foot version of a diameter mirror, uh, so 36-inch mirror, power single lens, one-inch focus, so that's a 25-millimeter eyepiece, single lens. So how, how many lenses are in that 13-mil Nagler, uh, Shane? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> So a single lens, again, they didn't have coatings, so they were also uh, wanting to keep as much light coming through as possible. Anyway, so uh, a great number of stars clearly visible in it. Still, Herschel's ring is not apparent, at least no such uniformity as he represents in his drawing. A year later, observed with a three-feet instrument, two friends assisting, both saw the center clearly resolved. And then finally, in 1845, the spiral arrangement of 51 Messier was detected. Three years later, with now the Leviathan, saw the spirality of the principal nucleus very plainly, saw also spiral arrangement in the smaller nucleus. nucleus. Oof, sorry. Uh, it will at once be remarked, this, this is still Lord Ross speaking here. It will be at once remarked that the spiral arrangement so strongly developed in 51 Messier is traceable, more or less distinctly, in several of the sketches of other objects. More frequently, there is a kind of irregular interrupted annular disposition than to the regularity so striking in 51 Messier. But it can be scarcely be doubted that these nebulae are systems of a very similar nature, variously placed to the line of sight. And Lord Ross goes on to emphasize what other observers overlooked when they poo-pooed his fanciful spiral uh, representation. Um, he said, the details which characterize objects of this class are extremely faint, scarcely perhaps to be seen with certainty on a moderately good night with less than the full aperture of six feet. And jumping another paragraph here, that such a system should exist without internal movement seems to be in the highest degree improbable. Measurements are therefore of the highest interest, but unfortunately they are attended with great difficulties. 
So, Alistair, did Ross and his team attempt any scientific studies or were they just kind of looking and sketching and wondering? Well, uh, they they tried. Uh, uh, back in the day, uh, double stars were a big thing. And so they had uh, micrometers that measured uh, the position angle. You can think of that as a hand of a clock, uh, the position angle away from north uh, from the central feature. So like a double star, you'd pick the bright star and then you measure the angle that the smaller star makes. And so uh, they had these micrometers. And so they set out to measure the rotation of N51 with as best readings as they could. Uh, so they, they found whatever was a point-like source, whether that was, uh, well, hopefully for them, they thought it might be a planet, uh, but uh, for us, uh, they're nebular knots. Uh, today, we know those to be you know stars and compact H2 regions. And as that work progressed, uh, a more realistic drawing was made, which was then engraved and published. And uh, that's uh, the uh, uh, image that uh, you can find on the actual astronomy um, website uh, that uh, the one I like, it's, it's a a photocopy, it's a scan of a photocopy. So it's not perfect, but um, it, you, know, you, you get to see you, you look at it and you go, yeah, yeah, that's what it looks like through a telescope. And so he's got, you know, all the dots marked out and uh, some other parts of the publication, they actually have a list of, of dot A to dot C dot N and uh, measured it. But uh, as of course, it turns out that it is difficult to do that. So, Chris, you shared with me another amazing drawing. It's uh, from uh, uh, Howard Banich uh, uh, that he uh, showcased in the July uh, 2011 Sky and Tell. I just want to say, though, he actually he sent this along to us. Uh, Howard's going to be uh, an upcoming guest on the show, and and he was uh, generous enough to submit this image to us, which he sketched. Alistair, I don't know if I included that in the note, uh, through a 28-inch reflector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As I said at the start, don't worry if you've got a smaller scope, uh, because uh, Lord Ross has uh, something important to say about that uh, coming up. But um, yeah, when when I went to uh, Howard's website and, and scrolled down the screen, I, I literally had that reaction uh, again that this is what it looked like. And, you know, it's as if I'm a, a five-year-old who just walked in on Leonardo da Vinci. It's like, oh, uh, I was going to show you my drawing, but um, so, uh, <laughs> you know, compared to Howard, I sort of see myself uh, as uh, Douglas Adams in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. A great job. Just, I feel like I, I, I'm just this guy, you know? Um, and so it should really be Howard talking about uh, uh, this, but it's a good thing uh, you've got him coming up on the show because yeah. uh, I'm really looking uh, forward to this. Uh, but it, yeah, it's absolutely stunning. It, it, it's faithful to show how the arms bend, the relative brightness of the star cloud to the wisp. You know, unlike the older black and white photographs, which had far too high a contrast, you know, or uh, the, the, the color images that are out there, some of them, the, the H2, the reds are cranked a little bit more than, than I would like. Um, 
but uh, like just, just one of the spiral arms has a, a real elbow bend to it. And I remember uh, one of the guys from the club saying, "Oh, come on, it doesn't do that." What, what you know? What were they on when they're when he was drawing that? And I go, oh, "Look at the the picture that the spiral arm does have. It's not a ninety degree bend, but it's a a, a really uh, stiff bend in there." But H two regions. So uh, Shane, can you say a little bit about H two regions? Yeah, for sure. Um, so really, it's a cloud of hydrogen gas that's triggered to fluorescence by the ultraviolet radiation of younger stars. Uh, some examples are M42, uh, the North American Nebula, Pac-Man, Lagoon, Eta Carina, the Tarantula, quite a few examples out there. Many of the listeners out there are passingly familiar with the giant H2 region in NGC 604, uh, hanging off the spiral arm of M33, uh, which is the pinwheel galaxy and triangulum. Not counting the unbelievably stunning Tarantula Nebula in the large Magellanic Cloud, NGC 604 is the brightest. We don't hear much about H1 uh, because that is the natural hydrogen. H2 is actually four narrow emission lines, H alpha in the red, H beta in the green, and then H gamma in the blue, and uh, H delta in the violet. The red H-alpha is what shows in all of the wonderful deep sky images that we're probably more familiar with. And then sadly, uh, you know, our dark adapted eyes can't see H-alpha, uh, but we do see H-beta. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about this in the past or, or in multiple episodes in the past, Chris, just about H-beta filters uh, and how they can enhance uh, the views of H-beta regions. And in some cases, you absolutely need the filter in order to see some of these regions too. And so uh, Howard has labeled in his drawing, or one of the drawings that has it annotated, a lot of these uh, H2 knots and uh, carefully lined them up with modern catalog identifiers. Uh, but uh, back in the late 80s, when I held up Lord Ross's drawing next to a Kit Peak poster uh, of M51, I realized that Lord Ross had seen several of these H2 regions, but plotted them as stars. So I was just uh, really stoked to to go out and actually try and see these things, uh, despite only having a 12-inch uh, uh, scope at the time. So here is uh, Ross's advice, and, and his encouragement uh, kind of shines through here. When certain phenomenon can only be seen with great difficulty, the eye may imperceptibly be in some degree influenced by the mind. Speculations are not without danger. On the other hand, speculations may render important service by directing attention, which otherwise would escape observation, having had our attention previously directed to it by an instrument of greater power. So, you know, even though it takes a huge scope to see these things, you suddenly realize, oh, maybe if I really try hard and be patient and know roughly where to look, I can get glimpses of them. The challenge, as a lot of uh, the listeners will know, is uh, especially with uh, a daub, is that uh, you run into the problem of no tracking at higher power. And uh, as you as you put the M51 in in the upper right corner of of the eyepiece, mm, there it goes. Um, and and so it's like, okay, uh, this is this is tough. So I'm going to buy myself a super wide angle eyepiece. So I did that. Uh, one of the the first uh, Naglers out there, 82 parent 
a degree of field, a seven mil Nadler, which gave me 255 times. And so that really helps. You know, you, you've now instead of, you know, it's just like, mm, you know, it, it's, it takes a little longer than that to go through the field, but it, it's still uh, pretty exasperating when you can go, oh, look at that. Oh, shoot. What was that? Now I'll give it another try. And nope. <laughs> And so eventually I, I bought a Ponce mount from Larry Wood at the Edmonton Centre. Uh, Ponces are still out there. Uh, they're usually called equatorial platforms. And you can just plop a, a big daub onto one of these things. And I found, to me, this was a real game changer. So it's very relaxing instead of doing this chasing. And suddenly those details just pop out um, when uh, you can actually just sit and watch. Um, so how can one make observations of the whirlpool structure um, and H2 regions? Magnifications. So what do you guys do for high magnification and on what? In the observer's handbook, they talk about using a maximum magnification of two times pre-aperture a millimeter. Typically, Alistair, not going exactly that high like in my five inch i'll typically run around i find like 145 powers is pretty good for a five inch and and what i'm looking at uh, of course you know our, our buddy mike scope um, we might be running a little bit higher than that into the into the 200 kind of thing like you know you think about something like a 13 millimeter in a barlow probably give about 230 magnification in in his 12 inch and we spent uh, pretty much a whole night once looking at M51 through his 12-inch at a pretty high hill location in Bortle One Skies. And we spent the entire evening on it, looking at it, using every single power that we could throw at it. So really, that was uh, that was our technique when when we spent a night just looking at, uh, at this galaxy. I know you have... You referenced the uh, Dickinson and, and Dyer's Backyard Astronomers uh, book as well. They they give some some good advice on uh, on observing, but they typically focus, I think, on low magnification. When when I've observed through really big instruments, though, sometimes we've used some super high power. I remember, I was observing through a friend's uh, twenty five inch f four eight, and I think I was using uh, a Nagler four point eight in that telescope mm -hmm. to. Uh, to look at NGC 7009, the the Saturn Nebula, and I wanted to see the uh, ANSE there. And yeah, things are flying by pretty quick, but uh, boy, the views are spectacular when, when you use those high powers in the big daubs. Essentially, magnification um, gets translates as detail, fainter for sure. Uh, and you have to really guard and protect that dark adaptation. Uh, Roger Clark in his uh, wonderful book, uh, Visual Astronomy of the Deep Sky, explores this in depth and references physiological studies of the eye's behavior and how at extremely low light levels, the ganglions in the uh, neural network of the eye, they actually enhance and even integrate uh, to produce a signal. And uh, one of his key results is that, distilled down to a nutshell, the eye can see big and faint things, not small and faint things. And so despite uh, magnification spreading out the light and dimming it, uh, the eye can handle that. And so it's it's really comes down to patience. And here's uh, Lord Ross's uh, note on that. The magnifying powers I've usually employed vary from 200 to 800. Occasionally, much higher powers have been useful. But to see everything described in this paper, a power of 600 with perfect definition is sufficient 
efficient. Oh, thank you. <laughs> when the air is unsteady, minute stars are no longer points. The diffused image is much fainter. When crowded together, the whole become blended. And instead of a resolved nebula, we merely have a diffuse, perhaps bright nebulosity. The transparency of the of the air varies also quite as much, and the aspect of the nebula change from night to night. And that's that's so true. I find that when I'm first trying to locate a faint target, for example, when I first was looking at Barnard's Loop or something like the Witch Head Nebulae or Eridanus Arc or something like that, I had to be under nearly perfect skies in order to see them. And now I find I can see the same targets under really good skies, but not skies as dark as I originally had required to make my first observations of a target. Do you ever find that, Alistair? Oh, a, a lot. Um, and and I, I mean, I remember uh, a completely different object. There's a, a little planetary nebula, Ps1, in the globular oh. cluster M15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that. <laughs> and the 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 first time we went for it, it it took us nearly three hours to yeah. track the thing down because, for one thing, the finder chart we had no idea whether it was flipped. Of course, you know, is this upside down or is it flipped? Is it flipped and upside down? And then finally, we caught on to this little trapezoid of stars, and oh, 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 got it. And then kachunk, kachunk, kachunk. And now. Uh, th this uh, planetary P's one is, oh, there's good finder charts out there. It's just ba-dump, ba-dump, ba-dump. And uh, yeah, if you've got a 12-inch uh, scope or, or larger, it's it's pretty easy pickings. But that first time, whew. <laughs> but it, it's also really reassuring to hear that uh, Howard, uh, with his uh, M51, he didn't do that drawing in an hour or even in a night. Um, and, and here's Lord Ross once more. Measurements of the points of maximum brightness in the modeling of the different convolutions uh, must necessarily be very loose. For although on the finest nights we see them breaking up into stars, the exceedingly minute stars cannot be seen steadily. And he talks about dark adaptation and sketching. You know, the greater part of the observations were made when the eye was affected by lamplight, what we call flashlights these days, or torches for the UK people out there. The uh, observations were made by the eye affected by lamplight, which made it difficult to estimate correctly the center of the nucleus. It was important and uh, no time should be unnecessarily spent after the lamp had been used and a new measure was taken. Uh, with the brighter stars, this would frequently happen before the nucleus was well-defined, as all impediments to vision seem to affect nebula much more than the stars, the light of which could be estimated as of the same intensity. In the foregoing list, the greatest discrepancies are in the measures of bright objects, and this is probably the proper account of it. Uh, no stars have been inserted in the sketch, which were not in the table of measurements. And the general appearance would have been much better if the minute stars had been put in, but it would have created confusion. You know, you, you really hear him talking about, oh, yeah, you, you know, you use a bright flashlight when even when you're sketching. Well, a light, it hits your dark adaptation. You look back in the eyepiece and, uh oh, uh, where, where, where did that go? And so, as you push towards fainter and fainter wisps and, and knots, it's you have to really take a break from your flashlight. A lot of people out there, they have a, a you know a pirate's eye patch for their observing eye, and they use their non-observing eye to light up the chart. 
and then you go back. But of course, you know, your brain still has that, you know, exposed light in, in the other eye. So sometimes you have to let that cool off and wait another five or 10 minutes for your eyes to sort of really uh, drop back down. So I, I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, Howard on your show and, and about the, the multiple nights. And, and I really want to encourage observers out there with eight or even six inch scopes to go for some of these features. Of course, you won't see what Howard does, but I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. To paraphrase Lord Ross, once you know what to look for, you can be patient and eke out some of these details. Um, and perhaps as we come uh, to a close on the topic, I, I'd like uh, you folk out there uh, to try observing M51 and M33, the pinwheel, with an O3 filter. It would be rather difficult to do this without a drive, but uh, give it a go if you're, you're up for it. Uh, think of them, these H2 regions, as the whirlpools version of the Orion Nebula or the Lagoon Nebula. And we know most of these nebula have strong O3 emission. So even if you don't have an H-beta filter, try an O3 filter on these things. Uh, I remember a night when uh, Randy Pacan uh, had his 16-inch scope on NGC 4449 in uh, Caney's uh, Venetici and remarked how modeled it looked. And I knew those uh, from pictures that those were H2 regions. So I suggested, well, let's put a no three filter on it. And, you know, it's like, are you kidding? Everything, you know, all the stars just drop out to near invisibility. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, but, and sure enough, what we saw was like a dim version of an open star cluster like M35, uh, pretty cool. And it's like all H2 regions. What a great observation to kind of conclude the show with. Do you have any other uh, sort of last thoughts or comments before we wrap things up? Yeah, uh, spring is uh, often touted as messy marathon season. And uh, so given this uh, in-depth show on uh, one object, I, I would uh, suggest consider the opposite. Try and do a marathon on one thing. And M51 is a great one. Excellent. And Shane, do you have anything to uh, to add before we conclude? Uh, just thanks again, Alistair. This was a really fun episode to learn about you know, various aspects of M51, just the different observations with different apertures and some of the history. I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Shane. And thanks so much, Alistair, for joining us today. We appreciate you really sort of taking over our show for an episode. It was it was really neat just to see how somebody might do it. And thanks again, everybody, for listening. We're always happy to hear what you are observing. Please send us your observations and feedback to actualastronomy at gmail.com. And please share this podcast within the orbit of your own astronomical community. We certainly would appreciate it. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>